So this week, of course, is Halloween, and if you have a neighborhood anything like my neighborhood, it's pretty crazy, over the top, uh, very playful in a way, but, but you look around and it seems as almost every ghoul and, and ghost has taken over the city. There, uh, the playfulness about it uh, is, is, is taken into account when, when they come to your door and all they have to ask for is simply candy. But what if, what if real ghosts and goblins took over? What if real demons took over the city? What if Satan was to have sway in our town? What would it look like? Is it the stuff of nightmares? Is it the scariest movie, scariest Halloween movie that you could imagine come to reality? That question was posed um, earlier in the last century by a pastor in Philadelphia, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he responded uh, and answered that, that hypothetical question in a somewhat uh, surprising way. He said, actually, if Satan was to take over a city, it would sort of look like this. All of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing. Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Is that, that that last punch that defines it all. That no matter how many nice things can go on, no matter how many wonderful ways in which society could uh, improve itself. If Christ is not there, if Christ is not at the center, then it's horrific. We're in trouble. And yet the truth is we can go to a lot of well-meaning churches and even talk to a lot of well-meaning Christians, and Christ doesn't always seem to be present. He may get lip service, or maybe some acknowledgement or, or a name on the wall somewhere that, that acknowledges that Christ is there, but, but really, is he vital? Is he necessary? Is he necessary in your life? Do you think that perhaps you can just improve, have, a, have an effort of self-improvement where you're mastering some disciplines that you've always wanted to, to master are you, are you trying to get rid of some sins that, that have produced guilt in your life? And if you could just get over those, you'd be okay. And do you really need to bring in Jesus? Could we as a community just simply be nice people? Could we make an extra effort at loving others and being gracious and, and being helpful? But not have to bring in all the baggage that comes with Christ. Can you have a spiritual component in your life but not need the person of Jesus? Well, Paul senses that there's this struggle in the church at Colossae that is similar to that. They've been attracted to Christianity, but, but they're not quite sure what to do with Jesus. Is he sufficient? Is he enough? They, they're happy with a lot of the things of Christianity, but they're starting to look for other things beyond Christ. And Paul 
from the very start of this book has been, been hammering home the point that Jesus is not simply necessary, he's everything. He, he's, he begins the, the letter that way, and then, and then he continues with the prayer that he's been praying for them, that he says, if I could pray anything for you, anything at all, my deepest prayer request would be for you to know Christ deeply. And so it raises the question then, who is Christ? Who is the one that Paul has been saying such lofty things about? Now, let's not fall into the trap of getting comfortable with the fact that, that we have had 2,000 years of people telling us who Christ is. And perhaps you've had your whole life of people telling you who Christ is. Let's come to his word again afresh and hear from Paul truly the understanding who Christ is. So as we do so, let's come and pray uh, to ask God to be with us. Pray with me now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark, but you continue to reach out to us, that you continue to open our ears and our hearts, help us to understand this word, help us not only to understand it, but to receive it and to rest upon it. For Christ's sake, in his name, amen. Well, perhaps the first thing you would notice about a passage like the one that we just heard read in Colossians is that there's a lot of intentionality about this passage, that it's skillfully put together. There is a a rhythm and a flow to it. There's a repetition of of themes that, that go over and over again. This is clearly a poem. Uh, Some have speculated that it was written by Paul right here for this occasion. Others have said that it was perhaps written uh, years before and used even as a a baptismal hymn in in a service maybe just like we had uh, today. But think about the fact that this is craftily put together as a poem. That very fact is significant Why would a person go to that much effort, not just in what they were saying, but how they said it? You know, a person writes a poem because he wants the hearers to slow down. He wants us to to think deeply about the subject of the poem because the information in the poem is too important to say in a simple way. If it's said simplistically, then we're going to have the temptation to just to skim right over it. William Willimon, a, a preacher uh, critical of uh, modern churches, has often uh, said, and, and has said profoundly, that a uh, critique of modern preaching, that, that what you get is oftentimes three points so easy to remember that they're not worth remembering. But there's something about the significance of what you're communicating that says, well, wait a second, maybe it should be hard to grasp and understand. Maybe I should slow down and think about it and engage my brain in it. Maybe I just can't pay attention to it for, for one time. Maybe I should listen to it again and again or read over it again and again. I was a, a literature major in college, and 
and uh, had an aversion to poetry uh, at the start, but you know, learned the skills. And, and if you've ever studied poetry, it's hard work. You have to pay attention to every line. You have to do research on every word. But when you know the system, when you figure out the structure, it makes you laugh. It makes you cry. Once you understand it, it can inspire you to do great things. And so Paul chooses the, the poem to communicate when he wants to get to the, the climax of this passage and talk about who Christ is. He does so in the form of high art. Christ is worthy to engage at this level. One of the images that that he wants to connect to his readers is the imagery of creation itself. He wants to draw us back to Genesis chapter 1. You can tell that because of the many words that are similar in Colossians 1 to Genesis 1. He'll talk about the image of God. He'll talk about creation. He'll talk about... uh, Things being, the, the uh, heaven and earth being created, the firstborn, the beginning, all these words uh, draw us back to, to chapter 1 in Genesis. But even more so, he wants us to start focusing on the very first word of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, that word, in the beginning. You know, if you notice, if I, if I was to ask you for synonyms for the word beginning, what would you shout out? You'd start to say, well, maybe start or, or first or before. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's taking the very first word of the Bible, beginning, and he's starting to describe Jesus in this. And so over and over again, he'll use the phrase, he is, he is, he is. And he'll use the descriptor here, he is the beginning, he'll say. He is the image of God, the firstborn of creation. He is before all things. He is the head. He is the beginning. Paul is saying something very profound about Jesus. He is saying that you can find him right there in the first verse of the Bible. And in fact, he's saying that all of creation, Jesus is the beginning. And he doesn't even forget the word in there. Because he'll say in verse 16, creation happened in him and by him and for him. Now, what Paul wants to do here is not simply get you to admire his skill at poetry or whoever created this poem to say, oh, wow, that's beautiful. What he wants you to do is is to understand something profound about Jesus. You see, the Colossians knew Christ as their Savior. They understood when the message of Christianity came to him that, that Jesus was there as the one who would deliver them. That's the Some of the verses that lead into this poem talk about Jesus as the one who delivers you from the the kingdom of darkness to the, the kingdom of his beloved son. That in Jesus we have redemption from our sins. But Paul wants to say you can't just leave Jesus as that. He can't just be 
simply your personal Savior. As if you could line him up with the other deliverers out there or the other heads of other sects. No, Paul says, to understand this Redeemer, you have to understand his identity with the very Creator of all things. Verse 15. Paul wants to say that in Jesus, what we have is the invisible God now made visible. Verse 17, he wants to say that Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, everything, every molecule, every every atom holds together. Verse 18 calls him the beginning straight out. Verse 19 says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Verse 16 says, almost quoting verbatim from Genesis 1, in him everything was created, things in heaven and in earth. And then he he says things visible and invisible, and he summarizes what some of those invisible things are. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, anything that's a force behind what you encounter in the physical. Jesus is head of all of those things and the source of all of those things. Oh, he's making this amazing point that Jesus Christ is to be identified with the same as the creator, God. Some of you may look at verse 15 and say, oh, wait a second here. Doesn't doesn't that actually make him part of the creation? Look look again, verse 15 says he's the firstborn of all creation. And that seems to undermine uh, everything we've been saying, that he is there in creation, uh, as as the head of creation, or as, as the God of creation. It's an argument that has been around the church for a long time. But let's think about the point that's being made there. This word firstborn has a context. Yes, it could mean firstborn in a series. So I talk about my oldest daughter as the firstborn so that she's distinguished from her siblings. But that's not the only way that firstborn as a word gets used. It's used other times in Scripture to talk about uniqueness specialness, unlike any other kind. So that in Exodus 4, Israel is called God's firstborn. The firstborn among the nations. Now God's not saying, Scripture's not saying in Exodus 4 that Israel is the first nation that ever existed. Saying that Israel has this unique identity. In the same way David, as king, in Psalm 89, is called firstborn among all the kings. He's not the first king ever. But God's saying, I have a unique, special relationship with you. So that's the first thing we could say about this word firstborn. But secondly, we have to understand Hebrew poetry and how it operates. Hebrew poetry often has a, a first line, and then it's defined by the second line. And that pattern is here again, too. Line one, he is the firstborn of creation. Line two, because by him 
all things were created. You see, the second line defines the first line. He's the firstborn of creation because he created all things. You see how that that explains what firstborn even means, because he is the source. And that brings us to the third thing, the very thing that, that Paul wants to show with this word firstborn as a parallel, because he'll use the word again in verse 18. And there he, he calls him the firstborn from among the dead. And there the, the, it's very clear what he means by firstborn. He is the source because of Jesus. Now there's going to be a new humanity, a new creation. That parallel is Paul's point. Just as Jesus is the redeemer and the bringer in of this new creation, he is also the source of the first creation of everything that's made, things visible and invisible. You see, Paul wasn't really concerned that we might misread this. His purpose is to stress that parallel. The Redeemer is also the Creator. Now, you may sit there and think, well, what's the big deal? What's so important about linking those two together? No first century Jew would ask that question. That was fundamental to who God is. God is always creator and redeemer together. That's what set them apart from many of the nations around them. They, They were monotheistic. There's only one God. You think about the way some ancient uh, belief systems operated, or even today, in the relationship with creation. Some would, would view that creation as a whole is not that bad. Yeah, sure, people make mistakes, and creation itself is wild and untamed. It can be dangerous, but it doesn't need to be rescued from. There doesn't need to be a redeemer. God is in all and part of all. On the other side, you see a creation that's evil and malevolent in the sense that there needs to be a redemption from it and perhaps there needs to be another God who comes in and rescues us from the first God of creation. Get us out of here because this This needs to be abandoned. But Israel always held forth monotheism. The one God who created all things is not going to scrap his plan. He created good, but but was corrupted by by the sin of man. And instead of leaving it to, to be destroyed, that same God makes a plan of redemption to rescue and redeem and transform his creation. That's, we can see that very message in the book of Genesis itself. The one God creates all things. Is the same God who called a special people to himself as he calls Abraham and those in his family. But here, Paul is saying, the man, Jesus Christ, is also to be identified with that God. This isn't a second God. It's not different from the God of the Old Testament. We don't have a God of the New Testament and a God of the Old Testament. 
Sure, there's a distinction between son and father. It's not the father changing and putting on a mask. There's a similarity between, and they're the same substance, but there's a, a distinction hinted at. If we had more time, we could explore how this even hints at an early Trinitarian understanding of God. But there's a sameness with Christ and the God of creation. I want to see it think about how profound that is. I know it's hard to think about how profound that is because for many of you, that that is how you understand Jesus. He's God. But think about that from a first century Jewish perspective. What What happened for staunch monotheists like Peter, like John, like all of the first century Christians, like Paul, what happened for them to say that this person, this, this man that was a contemporary of theirs, the same age roughly as all of them, to say that he now is to be identified with the one God of creation? Religion doesn't evolve to get there. That's not the out, natural outworking of where Judaism was going. In, in, in any sort of way, unless you understand something profound happening to explain God. The resurrection changes everything. That's why it's so profound to understand what Paul is saying here about Jesus. The implications of this stretch out into everything because Christ is the center. Let me just go through three implications of what it means, why it's so important for Jesus to be God, the God of all creation. First, if Jesus is God, then it means that we can fully and truly know God. That we can fully and truly know him. Now, many of us treat religion And perhaps our neighbors and friends understand religion as simply man's attempt to know God and understand him. Our best minds coming together, or perhaps a cynical view, our weakest minds coming together and conjecturing on what God is like or who he is. We're piecing together the clues to figure it out. Christianity turns this on its head. It says, no, If Jesus is God, then what we're really saying is it's the God of the universe who wants to make himself known to us. He is the image of the invisible God. That's the way the Gospel of John begins. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus will say later in that same Gospel, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We can know God. We don't have to speculate about what he's like or or if he is or anything about it. We we don't have to leave it up to guesswork or the conjecture of humanity. God has made himself visible so that we can know him. I included this wonderful quote by T.F. Torrance in your bulletin. 
This uh, Scottish theologian and pastor has said it this way, if Jesus Christ and God are not of the one and the same being, then we really do not know God. For he is some hidden, inscrutable deity behind the back of Jesus, of whom we can only be terrified. And then the final judgment of the world will be a judgment apart from and without respect to Jesus Christ and his forgiving love and atoning sacrifice. Cut the bond in being between Jesus Christ and God and the gospel message becomes an empty mockery. You hear what he's saying here? Jesus is not just a representative pointing to God. He's not just a prophet saying, hey, look over there at God. There is no God behind Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see the invisible God made visible. Let me illustrate this. When I take my oldest daughter, mostly, to the store and, you know, allow her to pay for something. She goes up to the cashier, and if I'm standing behind the cashier, the cashier's listening to her, but really looking at me, right? Because no matter what she says, she's still a child. You've got to wait to understand what, what the okay is from, from dad. Because if I say no, then it's no. If I say yes, then they'll go ahead. If Jesus is just a man, well, then we have man's words about God. Even if they were the best, even if he could be the best representative of humanity, you're still looking to him to get around him, to figure out God. But Paul, in this passage and in other scriptures, says, no, what we have here is God. If Jesus is God, we know for certain lots of things about God. We know that he's loving and merciful. We know that he's forgiving. Why do we know that? Because he is what he does. And what he does in, in history is who he is in his being. And so we can proclaim with the Nicene Creed, as we'll do later in this service, that he is, that Son of God is light of light and very God of very God. You see Jesus Christ, the Son. You see God. We can know him as the one true God of all of creation. There's a similarity, a, a, a union. Now, if you take that into the world, that understanding, that belief, then it can sound intolerant, even confrontational. It doesn't claiming that Jesus is this one God mean that other claims about God are wrong. Doesn't it mean that other conjectures about God or other religious systems who, who state firmly their belief about who God is, doesn't it mean that they're mistaken? We live in a pluralistic world, a world where there are many faiths out there. Is it an insult to declare that one is right and others are wrong? Where does Christianity get off claiming that we've cornered the truth? Now, 
I want to be careful here because I think many times Christians can be very arrogant and calloused. They've looked down on other faiths to the point where there is, I think, a real sin in the amount of arrogance that are used in cornering the, all that we can say about humanity and the world. You know, there are many people of all faiths and none that can say really good and even true things about the world, about humanity. There are, there are people who can even give us insights into God that Christians are often naive to. But there's a difference. There's a major difference and a difference that this passage really hits on. The knowledge is not simply knowledge from afar. It's not simply knowing things about the the God that, that has created all things. It's knowing him. It's personal knowledge. Christ came not simply for us to know that there is a deity out there, but he came for us to be reconciled to this God to know him in a personal relationship. That is how Scripture defines not simply walking with God and knowing him, but that's how Scripture defines sin. Sin isn't just bad things that we have done in our lives. It's not that you've just done a few things that you you regret and that perhaps you you could make up. Sin is a condition that is ingrained in our hearts that constantly bends us away from God. And we do this whether we are actively shaking our fist at God and hating him overtly, or we do this often in casual ways, that we're just generally indifferent to him. That we take that truth and we just suppress it and not pay any attention to his authority in our lives. Now, if this is really true, that Scripture's understanding of sin is that that it's a personal offense, that, that we have rebelled against God, then we know that there's a break in this relationship that's deeply ingrained in who we are. It's more than just saying, well, I've done a few things, maybe I can make up for it. What it's really saying is that our, our hearts are like a well that has condemned water in it. And there's no way for that well to cleanse itself. If Jesus is just a man, there's no way for humanity in some way to to make up for it. In fact, the more that we try to, to cleanse contaminated water with contaminated water, we're only making things worse. No. If Jesus is God, then what we have here is the offended party actually doing the act of reconciliation, initiating the act of reconciliation by coming near, revealing himself, uniting himself with humanity to bridge the gap. More so, taking into our humanity the guilt and the punishment of the sin that we've done. He is providing the way of reconciliation. God becoming human is not just simply empowering Jesus to do neat tricks. God becoming human isn't simply just a a nice story 
God becoming human is the initiation of a reconciliation between a God who has created us to know him and relate to him and a a repairing of the rift that we have created. That's why Paul can say that Jesus, in Jesus, God was pleased to dwell and through him, verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus drew near to us. Jesus went to to the cross and through his blood, the intention of it was to reconcile, to draw us to himself. You see, there are lots of people who are outside of the church and outside of Christianity who can know things about God, who can know true things about God. But will never know him, will never be reconciled to him apart from Christ. Just like you encounter many people on your day that you see at a distance, that you can can know details, infer details about them by what you see. Maybe they're in your class and you can, can see from what they do in class or what they might say in class, little things about them. But you never know them until you have a relationship with them. God in Christ came. That we might be restored, reconciled in that relationship. And so those are the first two implications, that, that we may know God, that we may know God reconciled to us. Now finally, the third implication of Christ being this one God is that reconciliation then is open for all. If he is the creator of all things, then this, cre- this, this reconciliation now is open to all. Because Jesus is not simply just a leader of a Western faith. Jesus is not simply the head of Presbyterianism, or Catholicism, or Christianity even, but is to be identified with the God of all creation, then what he stands for is not simply the center of one faith, but the center of all humanity. That means his message is for all people. That means his message is for you. That if you're here and you look around and you feel like, well, I'm certainly not as religious as everybody here. I'm not as spiritual as everybody here. I don't fit in. This passage says, no, this message is for you. If you think, well, I've done just a lot of things that, that make me and the church seem like an awkward fit. I can't be around Christians because I feel like I don't fit in. This passage says this message from God is for you. Reconciliation never did begin with us. It always begins and ends with Jesus and what he has done. The question for us is not, can we earn it? Can we fit in? But how will we respond to God who has come near? And it should challenge us who are Christians who know this reconciliation for ourselves to think about how it relates to all those other people in our lives. People we tend to dismiss. Well, 
Christianity wouldn't really work for them. You know, I, I know I'm supposed to preach the gospel, but boy, it would never work in their lives. Because we tend to make Christianity and Christ the God of our own little sect. We tend to think, well, he's got to fit with people who look like me, or people who act like me, people that struggle with the things I struggle with, or people that, that are interested in the things that are, I'm interested in people who are spiritually curious or religious in some way, or open-minded about these things. Oh, but it couldn't be for those people over there who are very much different from me. We can't parochialize Christ. Leslie Newbegin once said, we can't both proclaim Jesus as Savior of the world and treat him as the patron of our own private club. Christ needs to be the center. He can't just be for people like me. Christ is for all. Christ is for the, for the slow-witted because they know how much they don't know. But Christ is also for the genius because sadly that person doesn't know how much they don't know. Christ is for the poor and for the downtrodden because they understand their poverty and they can cry out, but Christ is also for the wealthy and the popular, because sadly, again, they don't understand the real poverty in their hearts and need to be shown and told, needs to be uncovered for them. Christ is for all, because all have the same problem. Creation is broken. Humanity has been disconnected from the author of all life. And apart from that, we die. If you're getting that, you're getting the point of this poem. You're getting the point that Paul wants to stress to this, this young church who, sin, who thinks they have Christ as Savior, but wants to look for more. Other things that could give them security and hope. Paul says Christ is all. He must be preeminent in everything. First place, supreme. He is the Lord of all. Will we respond? He comes to reconcile all to him. Will we be reconciled? When he reconciles all things to himself, it's not automatic. It's not that we don't, can sit there passively and not do anything. No, he'll go on to say that we can find ourselves outside of Christ and therefore outside of this reconciliation. The question is, Will you find yourself in him? Will you respond to him? If he's calling you, if you even might think that he's calling you, let's talk. Let's have that conversation. But for all of us, he's calling us to himself. We will celebrate that as we come to this table, but now let's, let's think about all it means for Christ, the fullness of God, to dwell in, with man.